This year's donations might go to, say, the geology department. Oh dear, not the dirt people. Geology is the study of pressure and time. That's all it takes, really. What kind of activity has turned the lake massive? Look, I'm just a geologist. I like rocks. I love rocks. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Geology Flannelcast. My name is Steve. Hey, everybody. This is Chris. Welcome. This is Jesse. <laughs> good. Nailed it. Nailed you it. Did. Welcome, <laughs> everyone, to the Geology Flannelcast. And uh, we have a special guest for today. We're bringing back. We haven't had a guest in a long time. Jeez. Uh, special guest today, uh, Ted Bobick. Uh, Ted, hey, you want to say hi? Hello, hello. I am very happy to be here. I am a ginormous fan of the flannel cast and a former protege of uh, Jesse Thornburg. Oh, now there's a lot of pressure here. That, now there's there's two proteges of Jesse Thornburg on this podcast right now. Uh, I feel like when you're on like Twitter or something, it's like retweets do not equal endorsement. I feel like I'm a disclaimer here. Yeah, he's he's never he's never called himself my mentor, but but I've I've referred to myself as his protege. Uh, <laughs> I love it. You know, I was I was Jesse's TA that way many many moons ago. One of my first and the best. Wait, <laughs> hang, hang on. I'm pretty sure I was your TA once. He already said it's the best. <laughs> well, this is awkward. <laughs> Oh, I forget what I TA'd you for, like in uh, physical or something. I forget. All right, all right. Anyway, anyway, say, so hey, Ted, <laughs> what do you like to do for fun? Tell us a little about yourself. Oh God, well, been in either undergrad or grad school for the past 20, 25 years or something. So I don't, I don't know what I do for fun. Um, perpetual student, you're a masochist, is really what it comes down to. Yeah, right? yeah. I like, I tell people I like learning. Um, but no, I uh, I play music, I fish, I uh, drink beer. So those are those are maybe the top three things that seem to occur. <laughs> All right. So uh, you, you're... I've wait wait. <laughs> I've known you for a long time. You have. I don't think. Well, no, I would have gotten to if you fish. Yeah. Oh my. I don't know that. See, Jesse, a lot of people go fishing. It's not like a like a crazy hobby there. No, <laughs> no, it, no I, I get what Jesse's Jesse's picking up that uh it doesn't it doesn't fit the vibe that I that I used to walk around with that temple. It wasn't I feel like I wasn't really walking around with outdoorsman energy. <laughs> you didn't have, you know, a trucker cap with your fishing license pinned to it. No, no, it was it was much more skinny jeans and talking about why Bernie should be president. I get it. I get what you're talking <laughs> well, about. Yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I too. I'm an angler, uh, but I probably haven't gone fishing in I don't know, 10 years. Well, I, I just started it up again. And um, when you do so many hobbies as little as I do, just doing something once, it makes it like your all time new hobby. <laughs> yeah, I, I still is what I'm into myself uh, a beer brewer because I brewed several batches of beer once about a decade ago. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Some of those beers were good. Some of them were not. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> they were I wet. Do, ain't it? 
I too am an amateur brewer. I've <laughs> brewed three batches of beer probably 15 years ago. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Actually, yeah, it might be it was before I had kids, so more than more than 13 years ago. You you're used to meet at the the General Lafayette, which had there's been like five subsequent restaurants where that place is. <laughs> yeah. <now>. It's haunted. <laughs> anyway, we should talk about geology. Yeah. So, Ted, <laughs> other than angling and drinking and okay music, you know what now, now, that I'm, now that i'm hearing it though anyone who knows me who does listen to this podcast is going to be like how the hell do they talk about fishing this much he's <laughs> gone like once in the past year <laughs> but yeah other, other than that there's some geology in there <laughs> nice what uh what's what's your specialty ted um i guess um broadly it's uh paleoclimate okay. and uh I uh, recently graduated uh, from Temple with my master's in um, in the paleosol world and in, in sort of terrestrial paleoclimate proxies. And now I just started a PhD at Brown where it's still terrestrial paleoclimate, but the focus is more on organic geochemistry and convincing people that I know organic chemistry so that I can play with the proxies that, yeah, again, they all kind of trace back to the t- terrestrial realm. Gotcha. Yeah. So geologists um, playing with proxies since 1752. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I guess specifically what, what kind of uh, what, what work have you done in the past? Sure. Uh, well, uh, I was gonna in the past. Today. Was that a pun? Yeah. <laughs> Tell us about your paleo work. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that works. No, it didn't. It was good. It's <laughs> guys. It's good. <laughs> oh, paleo work. I get it now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah. Thanks. Thanks for catching up. Here. Yeah. Uh, for, I, it those, wasn't my those, fault for the bad joke. Yeah. <laughs> those non Patreons out there, uh, Seminac actually was prepping ted saying yeah steve tells these jokes and he makes me laugh maybe once <laughs> so i'm gonna i'm gonna count that as once i made chris laugh <laughs> uh yeah so my work um uh what i was what i had kind of uh geared up to talk about today was what i did at temple for for my master's which is uh looking at the eocene Oligocene transition Mm-hmm. Um, and again, using using paleosols as the primary record of that time period um, and incorporated in them um, terrestrial leaf waxes and measurements of magnetic susceptibility within the larger framework mm-hmm. of those soils and what we can what we can learn about climate just by diagnosing and interpreting the soils themselves. So real, real fast, uh, for those listeners out there that may not know what paleosols are. Uh, they're basically it's when soils turn into rock, right? And so that's you can get uh, you get a lot of information about climate from paleosols because different climates create different types of soils. Mine so, equals blown. <laughs> so the soil is you know <clears throat> if you go out and look at your lawn, this is what I how I picture it. You know that the it's sitting there if you have a lawn, or you go out and look at the sidewalk, the dirt on the sidewalk it's, it's, it's active. There's, there's processes that are actively influencing the type of soil it is and climate is a big factor. And so if it gets buried and turned into rock, it'll preserve those influences. Yeah. You're, you're clorped, right? Yeah. I love clorped climate organisms, parent material, relief and time. 
There you get nailed it. There it is. Corped. Yeah. A whole a whole paradigm. The five factors of soil formation. Thanks, Yanny. I thought it was Jenny. <laughs> is it Jenny? I don't know. I don't, they're all all those old timey soil scientists. Yeah. <clears throat> run together in my head. It's cool. Another another thing I like to think about in terms of just like trying to define a paleosol too is how you can walk up to an outcrop and you're looking at like a siltstone or, or a mudstone at the same time that you're looking at a paleosol because it's almost as if those those soil forming features and those characteristics of the things that you know made it a soil are preserved into also like the larger just rock that's sitting there. So it's sort of like you have two lenses of looking at the paleosol, but then also looking at sort of like the lithology that it's encased in sort of. I like that. I don't know um, if I've ever really had that perspective before. No, no. I'm just thinking, you know, but, but you're right because before I knew what paleosols were, I would have said like, this is a siltstone. This is a sandstone. Yeah. But <clears throat> and since that, I've, I've, you know, been indoctrinated in the paleosol world, now I just like, this is a vertisol. This really is really what yeah. it is. Yeah. <laughs> but it's true. And I mean, it's something, especially with like intro said students, you take them out and they see like, oh, it's a siltstone. Well, it's it's a siltstone. It was a low energy environment. And I have to be like, yes, but also you can have, you know, 90% of the land of the land surface, you don't have active deposition, right? <clears throat> you don't have a river or a low energy swamp or whatever, all the different environments. I'm like, 90% <clears throat> of the environment it's just soil formation. So I'm not saying soils. Well, from everything. the Devonian on, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they're not everything, but they're a large majority of it. No, I mean, I mean, I, I agree. I think about that a lot driving around before I moved being in Pennsylvania and just driving around, you know, outside of the city and just, if I was heading out toward, towards Lancaster and just seeing like, you know, broad swaths of country and just thinking about how, like, I'm not seeing any streams. I'm not seeing any like really high relief for topography and just thinking about what does this look like, you know, millions of years later, you know, when it's, when it's preserved, this it's, it's interesting that, that these, these records of just interaction with the atmosphere and with the climate are just sitting there. And one day some kind of process is going to stroll along that that can bury them eventually once there's enough change, but they're just sitting there forever. Yeah. Well, was that dumb and dumber line That John Denver's full of crap, man. I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, and that, that gets to sort of, we're veering off a little into soil talk here, which happens. Uh, but like you said, going out towards Lancaster, which for those that aren't familiar with Pennsylvania, Lancaster is, <clears throat> is a huge agricultural region. It's um, I once heard a fun fact from a friend of the pod, uh, Liz. <clears throat> um, and she said she's from Lancaster. It's the largest agricultural unirrigated agricultural area in the world well wow. they don't rely on any <clears throat> most places don't need irrigation um we have a pretty good climate here in, in in pennsylvania and it's got really fertile soil but even at the surface this agricultural area when they till it 
that's disrupting that topsoil, that O horizon. And we can actually see that in the soil. And we actually, the, the, when you think, when you classify soils, we have a designation for tilled soil because it is, it's a process. You're, we as humans are organisms that are impacting the soil. Um, so all of these things leave their mark. And it's just another example of, of being able to sort of tell that story. Take that dirt. I want to, yeah. I want to, I want to play a uh, devil's advocate with you guys here. Pretty uh -oh. being, here we go. Being actually, I guess I'm the only one without a, a real soils background. Well, I was of, in, in, in my zoom right here. It's, it's Steve, me and, and Ted on the top, like the three guys who have done soils looking down at you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, ready, I'm ready for you to. Yeah, you it's, know. it's a metaphor, but carry on, Chris. Yeah. So, all right, let me, let me, let me, uh, let me just float this idea out, right? <laughs> So uh, I think it was Jesse. You said that ninety percent of the surface. I was is like no the land stuff. surface, land the land the land surface. Land yeah, yeah, and I was but don't you from like well okay I I, I know what you're saying I, but let me just uh, make a just kind of as a general sedimentologist I kind of yeah. you kind of look at terrestrial settings as like you know the only time you're going to get stuff uh, deposit there is in some type of basin. And unless if it's in some type of basin, it's probably going to get eroded away at some point. Correct. Unless so, it's stabilized so, by soil forming processes. Oh, Hi oh, you can have soils on relief. They're usually thin, but they're there. If yeah. you have roots, organisms, if you will. That's what you call head and shoulders, baby. <laughs> <laughs> There, you that's that's, there it is. It not, there it is. not just for dandruff anymore. That was a soil joke. <laughs> that was a soil joke. I'm going to try and pull together some disparate facts and try to really, really say something that sounds smart here. So if you have soils all across your land surface too, and it's primarily silt and mud, <clears throat> then you're not going to have a grain size that creates its own sort of turbulence and eddies to help entrain those sediments. So you're going to rely on really like high velocity flows to erode some of this stuff that's just out there sitting on, on relatively flat relief anyway. So I, I feel like there's also an argument that some of these sets can be kind of safe from just eroding away as well. well sort of, but I was, just, I was trying to stretch. I was trying to stretch it, that. It, it, I mean, it, it depends on it depends on a number of things. If if you have cohesion with the clay, if it's clay, which you can form, you form in soil. It's a soil formed, you know, mineral. Um, you get cohesion, <clears throat> but a silt is small enough that wind can pick it up. Like its mm -hmm. density is is the density of air is enough that it can pick up. What is that so, called again? I'm at, a, I'm at a Luss. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you, you have played, if you look at like the Luss plateaus in, in China where you, you eroded away. But yeah, Chris brings up the good point that you do. <laughs> Can I get that writing real fast? <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah. I mean, deposition mainly occurs in basins, but soils are, are sort of, you know, we teach it we teach sedimentology in those terms of you deposit in, in basins in low lying areas, but soils are the exception where you can stabilize the surface 
and 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 get preservation. Now, in high relief areas where you do have erosion, like the side of mountains where you have talus, so just broken up rock, you're, you're not necessarily going to get soil forming there, and so we would call that regolith. And so you do have, and that eventually will break down either through gravity or through transport, fluid transport into smaller grains, which maybe will go into a stream. And if that stream floods, it deposits those sediments onto the floodplain and the main process operating on the floodplain. Soils. Soils. That's what just, I mean, like I said, I don't specialize in soils, but I always tend to think, and this is just from an outsider, uh, whenever you, when it just seems like every time I see a soil, everyone, you know, the person I'm with just says, like, I'm talking like in the rock record, not like walking around, but you see a paleosol in the rock record. Um, oh yeah, it's floodplain. That's floodplain. Like <laughs> is there, is there ever, like, it seems like they're always like from floodplains. I think it's just the, <clears throat> just, the, just the stuff that I'm looking at. <laughs> I, I, yeah, kind of, but it's also just by area the largest i yeah. mean the main what's the main transport mechanism on land it's rivers it's water yeah, yeah so i mean near the coast you can get swamps and marshes and things but yeah so yeah less paleosol sequences too yeah yeah glacial glacial till huh. i wonder do you get soil for me i huh try to th- what type of paleosol would you get from like a uh, like a preserved like salt marsh. You get some ass. Oh, that's right. That's right. The acid, which is acid sulfate sulfate soils. Sorry. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I mean, where you get yeah. I think that's sort of the big one. So would you get call? You would get would you get call mixed with that stuff too? Yeah, if it's a really organic yeah. rich, yeah. Yeah. So I'm just but, thinking like a really organic rich marsh with like lots of peat in it, like that you'd see today. Please, like, please note, be... it's November 15th, and Chris was the first one to bring up coal on the podcast, not Jesse. Ah, <laughs> oh, look at that. <laughs> I, I am. So as a side note, I, I just moved, right? And so yesterday I moved. It was the la- actually this morning. I brought the last car load from my old house and it was just like the last bits and bobs. And I almost, but did not, I have this huge hunk of coal that I had sitting in my backyard, like under some bushes in the mulch. It was a nice little, you know, it's like a 50 pound piece of coal. It's a pretty big piece of coal. Uh, and I almost forgot it. And oh, I would have, I would have snuck back in the, in the dark of night to get that. <laughs> Lump. Lump hey, that's your secret stash. Like that's your uh, zombie apocalypse. That's gonna yeah, keep my house I, warm. When I was thinking, like, if one of my new neighbors questioned me because I was walking up like the street carrying this big lump of coal, I'd be like, "Well, I'm a geologist. Also, you never know." <laughs> Not that I have anywhere to like burn I'm, it in the house. I'm, no, but I'm assuming it's anthracite, right? Yeah, yeah. So that burn for a while. It would. You gotta, yeah. you gotta get a pretty roasty toasty though to get it burning. Though. Yeah, it takes. That's the problem with the site. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know if my fire pit in the backyard will cut it. Just it might blows out and <laughs> really crank that sucker up. <laughs> All right. If you can get a trash fire hot, hot enough. <laughs> Sorry, too too soon, Centralia. Sorry. 
Uh, I, I didn't know you were talking about Centralia with me. Yeah, I, that was right. a really good. I like that reference. That was a good, good dig right there. Let's go. Um, let's go back to the 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 Cenozoic talk. So, um, so Ted, with uh, with your stuff, talk to you said you mentioned that you were looking at uh, leaf waxes. Can you go? Uh, can you go a little more in depth about that kind of stuff? Sure, uh, somewhat. <laughs> So uh, leaf waxes, um, basically what we wanted to do was we wanted to uh, look in the White River Group, which was uh, our site was in uh, northwest Nebraska. Okay. And this is um, sort of part of like the larger Badlands topography. It's not Badlands National Park, but the White River Group goes, you know, correlates into, into the Badlands National Park. So it's that whole whole sedimentary sequence and that same kind of <clears throat> topography that you recognize and uh, all that deposition occurred during this abrupt cooling period when the Eocene transitions into the Oligocene. Mm-hmm. What, so, what's the age of what just refresh my memory how many millions of years ago was the Eocene Oligocene? Sure 30, 33.9 million years ago ah. is the boundary So this, ah, so sometimes that's, it that's, gets it's like right not, not consistent in some of the older literature, but now it's the, everything I'm seeing seems to converge around 33.9. What was the age of the Chesapeake Bay impact? Is that 35? 35, that's a little bit I want to say. All right, so that's a little bit before the end of the... Yeah, but 33, I mean, the cooling, that's the onset of like permanent glaciers on Antarctica form starting to form. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, and it's all, I mean, it's, it's... Is that when the Drake Passage opens up to? So that's that's when the Drake Passage opens up, but I think there's some research out there that is now pretty much attributing all of all of the cooling just to a drawdown in CO2. So the Drake Passage was like a big like part of the story because the um, Arctic circumpolar current forms after that passageway opens up, so it keeps the idea was that quick, the Drake the Drake Passage is the basically that that gap between the southern tip of south america and antarctica one of yeah. my favorite places tierra del fuego mm. Mm. so yeah so that that opens up and then you get the the um the basically uh the what's that called oh, why am i blank you just said it a second ago the, uh, the arctic circumpolar current thank you yeah 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 <laughs> and the and chesapeake bay was 35 5 30, it was 35 ago. okay okay that would be a nice um, nice timing if it was 33 so what do so okay so if the cool the the cooling at this time is attributed to CO2 uh, drawdown. Uh, what's, uh, so, what's driving that? Yeah, what's is it just like... Uh, yeah, who's uh, driving when, that bus? When did grass like, Plant evolve? life and stuff? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think this predates like like all the... Because like, grass is a big Miocene topic, right? Yeah, well, the expansion. Actually, I, I think I just read a, <clears throat> a paper on this. They think they've got grasses... There, there's a group right? now that thinks they have grasses all the way back into the Cretaceous. Yeah, we've talked about the podcast before. Yeah, yeah. with the they, uh, oh, what are those silica green? Yeah, oh, um, things called something lifts. Phytoliths. Yes. Yeah, they think they've got them back. I want to say Aptian or Albion, which is like 110, which is old. But is this the but so the thing with this, the grasses though? They they were around, but they really didn't become abundant until the yeah. Cenozoic era. Is this when, like, the transition from C three to C four? Is that what we're seeing here? Do you know about that? I think that's. I think that's Miocene. Yes. Oh, okay. Uh, you you do. There is like scant evidence of 
patches of C4 grasses back this far, but it's not widespread. Okay. So just, just I, really quick, uh, C3 and C4, it's just the metabolic pathway that a plant uses. <clears throat> yeah, it's not plastic explosive. Yeah. And it just... Well, it, it is, but not in this reference. <laughs> I watch a lot of eighties and nineties movies. Yeah. <laughs> Whenever I hear C four, I just think plastic. No, I, I mean, yeah. If you don't know, <laughs> you you're not. You haven't watched enough eighties movies. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Which, by the way, one of my best favorite Christmas movies is going to be Die start Hard? playing soon. Die Hard. That's right. Die yeah. Hard. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but it just affects how they how they use CO two and and whatnot. So anyway carry on no but it's well it's good that we're we're honing in on grasses and actually maybe i should have uh known that there's this evidence of uh grasses back in um what did, what did you say as far back i thought they, i saw i look don't don't quote me on this yeah don't no record, no don't record no. me no one's recording. turn off the recording yeah. uh <laughs> it's somewhere like aptian or alb i want to say albion like which is like early Cretaceous. the mid cretaceous is the albion the centimanian trend boundary so yeah who doesn't know that well because one of the things one of the things that uh we found was that so basically just like a quick background uh we had hoped so covid kind of ruined our 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 field plans because we had hoped to take a little bit more of a lateral spatial approach to the white river group and do more of a transect study um and because we couldn't get out to the field i was looking at um uh, paleosos all from the same like stratigraphic section in northwest Nebraska uh, at um, Toadstool Geologic Park. So these were these were archived samples. So it was it was just a total vertical succession of stacked paleosols. There was there was a little bit of lateral movement in 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 the in the study site, but for you know all intents and purposes, this was basically a soda straw stuck into stuck into the ground, um, and so. In order to try and, and say, well, how do we think about the potential for uh, spatial and regional variation versus just the climate change through time, the perspective was, all right, let's take a multi-proxy approach that includes soils, magnetic susceptibility, and leaf waxes. And if things are relatively consistent, except for that inflection point, that tipping point between the Eocene and the Legocene, then maybe that's one way of, even though we don't have the, like, the ability to go do a more spatial lateral study, say most of this change is attributed to the global climate change. If everything's stable through this longer period of time, and then all of the changes abrupt and coincident the, during the, the same time that the trans transition hits, then maybe that's one way of, of, of saying that these changes that you see in the White River Group are associated with the EOT. And so with leaf waxes, one of the things that uh, was really interesting is, I have some, I have some notes here, sorry. <laughs> Wanna get some of this stuff right. Um, but so for a few million years leading up to, the, to the, that inflection point, um, there's really stable conditions with precipitation and leaf waxes that are in indicating these forested landscapes. And the way we get that information from leaf waxes is we look at their alkane structure. Wait, and sure. I don't want to interrupt you, but I will. 
research, please. <laughs> Let's take a step back. Tell me what a leaf wax is. Gank, I was going to, I was just about to ask that. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. Before I talk about canes, I should talk leaf wax. <laughs> yeah. Let's... Yeah. So it's, it's this, it's this outer layer of the leaf. It's, it's the interface between the leaf and its environment, much like the way the, you know, the O or A horizon of a soil is the interface of a soil and its environment. And one of its primary functions is to attenuate water loss from evapotranspiration mm -hmm. and to help protect the plant against stress. So if there's an increase in water stress, um, what will happen is a leaf wax will sort of deposit more wax onto the leaf so that it can attenuate those effects of water loss. So in, and, in hot environments, there's more wax. In cold uh, or or mm, it's more, more, more stress, water stress, more, more stress. water stress. Well, what, yeah. what causes water stress? Well, because you can because they can they can deposit more leaf wax in colder environments, too. If it's just if it's low, low precipitation, low precipitation. Or? Yeah, that's the primary driver. There's there's temperature. So um, is this just like I'm sorry. Once again, I, I just have uh, I just want to make sure that uh, we all get this straight. Are we just talking just basically just the organic like leaves falling off of trees, like just kind of getting deposited as or organic material mess, uh, like mixed up with these soils? Is that basically where you're where you're getting this stuff from? Yeah, and then they degrade, and then the the um, the waxes and these um, basically the waxes. One of the big components of them are just alkanes, or just carbon, just these skeletons of carbon and hydrogen, just these okay. molecules that are just pure linear chains of carbon. They really resist diagenesis, and they hang around for a really long time without without a lot of alteration. And so, so there are sort diagenesis. of diagenesis. Uh, that was by L. Ron Hubbard, right? Yeah, you. Uh, <laughs> so the leaves no, live inside a volcano. No, diagenesis basically. I'm trying to think of the thing they measure. They measure something, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, burial compaction. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. So the as you get buried, when when sediments get buried, uh <clears throat> you know you you start you, as things get squished and the deeper they go they get heated and that alters you know some of the original composition or the original structures or the original characteristics we call that diagenesis right yes yeah, does that sound about right yeah i so buy you, that you just have to you have to account for essentially you're accounting for time you know, how has this thing been altered? It's like if you're walking through the woods and you see a car that's all rusted out, like, you know, it's a car. This, you know, it's been altered because it's been sitting in the woods for maybe my woods are different than your woods. But if you see a car in a crick in the woods, <laughs> proper use of the term crick, it is good there. That's it. It's the definition, but it's been altered since it was parked. Whoever parked it there. How do you park a car and forget about it? I'm not. Those are, those are deeper questions yeah. than just sort of figuring out. Sounds like a rich person been, problem, but yeah, carry how on. it's been altered. Um, so I guess the, but the, the leaf waxes are, they're, they're very strong and like, they're just, nothing happens to them after they get uh after they're mixed up with the sediment right yeah the waxes they're they're sort of like <clears throat> i mean 
are the waxes themselves organic or no they're just like um they're they're organic and and their their biggest enemy is microbial activity but they're they're largely non-reactive and they're they're just they're hardy so they do hang around it's it's sort of they're it's very similar in my mind to pollen or spores where you have so like you're getting like are they like this is a really uh, forgive me if this is a really stupid question but these leaf waxes that you're looking at are they really small like microscopic like little fragments like pieces bits of wax or like how so you almost you so a lot if if my my scope might be a little myopic on on leaf waxes but i think that most of the work with leaf waxes um, unless you have like pre- preserved like detrital leaf material mm-hmm. and you can actually like uh, scrape off the, the wax and look at it under like an electron scanning microscope, I- unless you're dealing with that, it's really just the alkanes themselves. And, and at that point, you're just actually extracting a liquid organic fraction from your sediments. You're not seeing anything. You're yeah, just reading- you, you wouldn't see. So I, okay. I do just want to I, I have a little little background in this because uh, I, I, I worked on leaf waxes as an undergrad in a organic geochemistry lab uh, in the Badlands. Fun fact. Um, full circle. Full circle on grasses from this time. Um, bury, bury the lead. All right. <laughs> um, yeah. So like you're like pollen, you think of like pollen is visible under microscope spores can be visible by the naked eye but like those are structures you'll see but yeah like ted was just saying like unless you have you're rarely going to have a preserved like leaf where you can scrape something off even if you have like a carbonized impression or something you're you're just getting you know like this you're looking for the the geochemical signature so you're going to break down the rock and process it to look at, look for the, the geochemical signature. So how, how are we extracting the wax? I, yeah, I don't know how you, back in the day, 15 years ago at this point, we used column chromatography. I don't know how you do it. Tell, yeah, me, no, how, tell me how technology has approved. No, um, uh, I mean, that's, that's basically it. Um, you, you, it has to be an easier way. Um, I'll let you know when I find it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, you know, there's the ACE extraction. So when you, you, that's, yeah. that's pretty. To explain it. What's the ACE extraction? It's just, it's just a, a high pressure, like quick way to, to get, run a solvent through your, uh, actual like physical ground up like sediment. Okay. And so you're, so you're just, taking basically you're you're taking a chemical that breaks down organic material. I don't know if it breaks it down as much as it's an issue of polarity. And so it can pull out organic molecules. Yeah. It kind of like like dissolves like so you're pulling out you're pulling out that. So it's uh, yeah it's an organic solvent that's going to pull out. And so that that part is is quick now. But then after that, it's just the column chromatography from there. Do you just still packing columns with silica beads, oh running it through. Oh, it's taking me back to all the glass pipettes, and you're just yeah, it's all that. It's all it's oh. all pipetting into these small glass columns, and I'm then... gonna go down memory lane here. <laughs> um, I made, I think I made minimum wage on that job. 
which was seven twenty five, oh, which geez. is still minimum wage. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> that, but I I didn't. There was a while when I was doing that job in the beginning, um, where I didn't use gloves, and um, I <laughs> I wasn't. I was like I don't know. I was a junior in college who knew nothing, an undergrad, and no one in the beginning sort of taught me they sort of showed me the steps of how to do it but i didn't really know lab technique or anything like that and they were like i remember the lab tech walked in at one point he's like hey why aren't you wearing gloves and i was like i don't know because i got a better feel for things uh and he's like yeah but you're made of organic material and those are organic solvents (laughs) you know it's you know, just putting two and two together is probably really bad for you. And at one point I was acid washing things, which is where you take the glassware and you put it in a big tub full of, I don't know, hydrochloric acid. And I was just sort of mixing it up with my hands. And he's like, Hey, what, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, I'm acid washing these things. He's like, yeah, you know, acids like just, from a general education perspective, you know, acid is usually bad for you, right? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, but, you know, it's it's pretty low molarity. He's like, please put on gloves. Please, please just stop yep. everything. Yeah. You know how many times I washed stuff out with acetone? Yeah. Like, oh, it's acetone. But it's, you know, like almost getting frostbite from the evaporation from the acetone. Yeah. I was- and not only that, like, I don't need any more damage to my liver i've done enough of that already no, i was i was in the grad school before i started acid i was like acetone it's nail polish remover i'm yeah. fine yeah yeah no yeah you should always wear gloves yeah we we were friends we are friends with some good chemists who had the lab next to us who really scolded us a lot yeah they taught us a lot they probably did. added years to our lives really we owe them <laughs> A lot. But anyway, um, yeah, column column chromatography. So you're just extracting this and then so you get little vials of the extracted organic material and then you're going to run it through uh, a chroma, chroma, liquid chromatography. Is that what you do or do you do ICP? Yeah, it's liquid chromatography. Yeah, so you're, you're basically looking. You explained. I haven't done it in 15 years. Why am I talking? I'm going to mute myself right now. No, I've done some piecemeal work on on here, and um, I've actually explained the bulk of what I've done. So, uh, with with the alkane portion of it, uh, I had some I had some numbers sent to me after that point. <laughs> we nice. didn't have we didn't have we we didn't have all of uh, we didn't have all the equipment. So the alkanes, and you can explain this because you know this. The alkanes are just it's the structure of the organic material, and so you have these little carbons that are all in a chain and you're looking at the length of the chain. Right. Right. Because when, when the plant is exposed to that added stress, like water stress, the way that, that uh, when it adds wax to the plant, when it just thickens that outer layer that manifests in a longer alkane chain. So there's. So the thicker, the wax, the longer, the alkane chain. Yeah. And, and the longer the stress, the more stress, the longer the alkane chain. 
So that's, and, and, and the thing is that, that there's also kind of two, two lenses too, right? Because that's true within these two larger bins. But one of the things that leaf waxes are really good for are, are taking a, a um, tree bin and a grass bin. And so basically on, on these gas chroma, uh, chromatographs, I guess is how you pronounce that. Yep. <laughs> sure. That's, I got something. That's why. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the so they, there's basically like a distribution of alkenes. And so if you're, if you're looking at like a tree leaf, the distribution, most of those alkenes are going to have a chain length of 27 carbons. And then there might be some with 29, there might be some with, with 25. Um, oh, sorry, 27 or 29. So you'll have, you'll have this sort of Gaussian curve of these, this distribution of different alkane chain lengths. You'll, and if most of those chain lengths fall on either 27 or 29, then you're looking at alkanes that are, are from like a deciduous tree. And then if they're skewed, uh, higher or lower, then you can think of water stress within that vegetation type. But if all of a sudden you have a uh, collection of leaf waxes and the, the, the highest number of uh, uh, carbons is closer to 31 and 33, when you jump up to those numbers, then you're actually looking at a whole other plant type. You're looking at graminoids, grass-like vegetation. So you're either, you're either dealing with alkanes around 27 and 29 for trees, 31 or 33 for grasses. And then within those bins, if you're also seeing like a trend towards higher, higher chain lengths, higher numbers for your alkanes, then you're also looking at, you, you can sort of interpret stress in that vegetation type. Damn, but that's got to get messy though. What happens if you transition from a tree type environment to a grass type environment? Is that just right. more stress or are you just going from 27 to 33? Right, right. So it does get messy, but you, there's also kind of like this peak shape when, you, when you're looking at the data so that you can have a dominant peak, let's say around 31, and then this sort of subdominant peaks on either side of it. And if you have this fit, you can sort of interpret this distribution of alkanes as coming from a particular plant type. Got it. But, but if you have a big mixture then that sort of diagnostic fit is, isn't going to, to be as clear. Cats and dogs right. living together. Yeah. Hysteria. So, so the million dollar question is at the uh, ESC and Oligocene boundary for the transition where, uh, where you were studying trees stressed or not. Stressed? You, what happened? Come on. You're I'm on the edge come of on. my seat right now. You're man, on the Tell us. <laughs> it was exciting. I'm not saying it wasn't exciting. We oh, had, no. we had, no, no, it's very exciting. We had like uh, five paleosols over over the course of um, you know a million and a half years, just this late Eocene, right before the EOT, before the transitional period. And during that time period, the leaf waxes sit squarely in this uh, deciduous tree distribution. Mm -hmm. And what's really crazy is in the lead up to the EOT, over the course of that a million and a half years soil proxies for precipitation showed that we actually got a, a mild increase in precipitation stretched out over that time. And coincident with that increase in precipitation, we see the leaf waxes, the numbers start to come down. So we're seeing that in the lead up to the EOT, 
we're getting more rain and the leaf waxes are getting smaller, exactly what you would expect if they're responding mm-hmm. to that increased precipitation. Nice. From more than one proxy, not just leaf wax, but other other things right. as well. Other lines of evidence, I guess I should say. Yeah. And 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 those and the two are are totally separate. So so the precipitation that we that we get from the soils is not reliant on the leaf waxes at all. So it's not like circular or anything. But what's really cool is that there's a soil, there's, there's this uh, volcanic ash layer that marks the EOT in the White River Group. That's why it's such a cool place to study this, this time period, because mm-hmm. we have this ash bed that's 33.9 million years old. So it marks that transitional period. And we we're looking that's at a lucky. soil. Yes, yeah, super, super lucky. <laughs> yeah. and, and soil built right on top of it. And the leaf waxes just jump up. And, and they're, all of a sudden, they look like grasslands and prairie lands. You have to be careful about the language you use, depending on how you feel about grass expansion pre-Miocene, but more or less, they're, they're graminoids. They're in that 31, 33 distribution, and that tracks with a 500 millimeter per year drop in precipitation. So we had the lead up to the EOT, we're actually getting a little bit wetter. The leaf waxes are getting a little bit shorter, thinner, I guess you could, you could kind of think about it. I mean, this, this all makes sense the world when it gets cooler precipitation goes down yeah it's cold air can't hold moisture um what why because it seems like it was getting wetter and then it drops well hang on one second no am i jumping the gun no i have a quick question oh ted you said you had a bunch of notes Yes. yes were they perhaps written on a word document how are they formatted? You know, I had it. I had it written in a Word document, and the formatting was just so terrible that I realized I, I couldn't even use it. I need some help. With that. <laughs> oh man, you are a godsend! I'm telling you, that is a wonderful transition to our wonderful sponsor, the Formatting Formula. So, uh, www.formattingformula.com or YouTube forward slash c forward slash Formatting Formula uh, for all of your Word document formatting needs. Um, uh, Ted is currently in a PhD program at the wonderful Brown University, so I'm sure he'll be having multiple, multiple uh, manuscripts and PhD. Uh, no, it's not uh, not a thesis. What is it called? Dissertation. Dissertation. See, I don't know. I'm you know I didn't go that far. So <laughs> you're not missing much. Don't worry about it. <laughs> anyway, the formatting formula could help you out actually the formatting formula does uh hundreds of dissertations and theses a year so helping people format for their different universities and their different formatting styles and all that stuff as well as regulatory environment for government documents and things like that so for all of your word document format needs please check out the formatting formula and also make sure you say the uh geology final cast in you so thank you Oh, we're right. kicking on back to Ted. All right. Now, what, what were we talking about? Uh, the the cooling and precipitation going down? and Yeah. So we were, we were saying the lead up to the EOT. Um, actually, we have some yeah, independent lines of evidence that show it's getting a little warmer. It's getting a little wetter. And the leaf waxes are as expected or as you would hope to see. Um, the, the chain lengths are, are showing... Um, 
So I guess I'll just go back. I missed some of the terminology. It's basically called the average chain length. You have a bunch of these alkanes in a distribution and what's the average. And so that average is starting to, to go down. And that would, that would make sense if the plants are less stressed. And then we kick over the, the EOT, the eosin leucine boundary. And that's when we were saying drop in precipitation and the leaf waxes accordingly shoot up. And now we're looking at these prairie-like landscapes, which makes sense with the precipitation regime that we're in. You know, we're so, in the, I mean, this is really interesting because going into like this cooling, you would expect, you would expect see this gradual decrease or gradual cooling or whatever. And you're saying <clears throat> it's getting, it was wetter and wetter. They were unstressed on average. It was pretty wet. And then across the boundary, boop, you see, yeah. you see a drop. So, so it's more of, I, I don't want to use the term abrupt, but it, it, it's a distinct change. And I guess that's what defines the boundary, but. Yeah, and, and I think abrupt is abrupt is apt too, because even in the Delta 018 marine record, it's it's described as abrupt. Oh, and okay. So, and seeing that, seeing that is what makes it such such a distinct marker in the terrestrial world. It's seeing that really fast change. Um, talking. What, what was that? How fast are we talking? Um, I think it's. I mean, there's no younger dryas. Let me. Let me. What is? That's my favorite of all the abrupt climate changes. Just as a fun younger, fact. younger dryas. Yeah, you love it. You love it's it. Gotta, gotta be. We just talked about it last week, right? Yeah, it's, it's volcanoes' faults, right? Get, get out of here! <laughs> no, it's the comet. It's the comet. Oh, the comet. That's what <laughs> yeah. it was. Yeah. So, so this this drop to this big cooling uh, that it's it's four hundred thousand years is is the sort of the before and after of the big distinct shift. Pretty quick. Yeah. Yeah. It's no joke. It's up there. I mean, it's twice as long as humans have been on this planet, but it's no joke. Yeah, I never think about it in, in those I, terms. I, I'm, I'm very, and I, I teach all my classes this way too. I'm like, I'm very selfish about this because I'm going to say like, we're going to make this very human centric. But I, I oftentimes when I try you. and teach the scale of time, <laughs> humans have not been on this planet a long time. You know, modern humans in the grand scheme of things, I always use 120 as my 120,000 years, 200,000 if you're being sort of loosey goosey with things. But it's not a long time in the grand scheme of things. But four hundred thousand years is really quick. Yeah, no, I'm just I'm just having a moment now that I'm thinking about all this geologic time that we think about in millions of years, and now uh, the human scales. It's kind of shaking me up a little bit. <laughs> you all right? You mean you just uh, calm me down yeah. a little bit? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Four hundred thousand years is a short time or a long time. I want to no, bring no, you. No. I want to give you an existential crisis here. That's yeah, what I'm trying is... to do. It's short. We're just going to try to break that record. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's, that's what, as humans, we try and break records. And that's yeah. what we're doing. Uh, we're number one. So um, during this uh, Eocene Legacene transition, it looks like there's a little, it's not one of the, one of the big mass extinction events, but it looks like there was a bit of a, bit of a die off uh, during this time. And uh, I, 
uh, so Ted, have you, have you done any work um, or has any of your stuff kind of related to related to that little, I guess, uh, bump in extinctions during this time period? I haven't really looked at that. I mean, I, I know just from the literature that one of the one of the ways that this is correlated across different terrestrial environments is different, like faunal turnovers mm-hmm. and um, uh, you know changes some some change in vegetation that um, uh, I think I think Europe and sees like vegetation changes, and then other other regions see more faunal turnovers. But mm-hmm. yeah, that's the extent of, of what I kind of came across. Yeah. It looks like there was uh, from just briefly looking this up. Uh, most of the stuff was uh, marine in nature too. Um, that was affected by this. Um, but yeah, it's always interesting. And, and, you know, the other thing too, like we mentioned earlier, there was uh, you know, people, we, we kinda, I think we mentioned this in la- uh, last week's podcast uh, about uh, when we were talking about the, the Devonian, um, the late Devonian mass extinction event. Devonian. Yeah. We're always so, so eager to throw like impacts, you know, at the, you know, say, Oh, it was, it was called by the impact, but there were, yeah. And, and once again, for this, this time frame, they were actually, there's, there's two craters. I'm sorry. Well, two, two impact events around this time. Uh, like I said, the Chesapeake Bay impact crater and the Papagai crater in uh, Siberia. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't know, supposedly some people are, uh, starting to date this, uh, Papagai crater and it, it might strengthen the causation of the mass extinction or not the, it's a, the, the extinction event, but I don't know. It's what, substance. what was the name of it? Uh, Papagai. I just, I just want to see how many times I can make you say that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you pronounce it right. That's the first I've ever heard of this. I mean, one. that's uh, how I would say it. I'm not going to, but thank you. Thank you. <laughs> see what I have to deal with week in and week out, ladies and gentlemen. This is yep. And you keep coming back, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> I can't argue with that one. Um, so Ted, what do you, uh, what's, uh, what's your plans for the future, man? Oh, uh, well, can I, can I just say one more interesting? Oh, yeah, that, sure. Well, just cause you brought up, you brought up extinction and fallen turnover and, um, not exactly the same thing, but I just thought it was interesting because, you know, we, we, we talked about leaf waxes and we talked about, you know, extracting these organics out of sediment and gas chromatography and all this, you know, stuff that you make plots out of and, and you make graphs out of. But one of the cool things is, so the soil that's right over that Eocene Legocene transition, mm-hmm. because it's in this uh, you know climate with less water and there's there's actual less soil development going on this time. One of the things that uh, I based some of the my interpretations on were the were an oreodont skeleton that was in that was in the soil. So when you don't necessarily have like data that you can plot. Sometimes you get lucky and there's actual like paleontological evidence that you can you can go off of. And mm. because these like, you know, these old creatures lived in like these open biomes and these like savanna prairie like landscapes, it, it helped sort of, you know, was another independent check on some of the stuff that the soil proxies and the leaf waxes were saying. So mm. oh, that's, yeah, not, that's yeah. Not, not something you can plot, but it's really cool the way some of that macro physical evidence can just be like a huge, you know, you know, bullseye or beacon. Yeah. Yeah. 
So actually, uh, when you see the the drop in in precipitation, things get drier. Do you see less soils being developed? So you, yeah, you see like a, a change in like soil fabrics, like clay clay fabrics within the uh -huh. soils. You, you see things that that don't uh, uh, indicate like as much soil formation. So so before the EOT, um, you have you know fabrics that indicate shrinking and swelling so that water is percolating through and you look at it underneath a microscope and you see these sort of like lattice like fabrics that you see these clay fabrics that, you know, they catch your eye and you see these shapes that you, you, you see clays sort of meeting at these 90 degree angles. So, so, so the clay, clay minerals, <clears throat> uh, they're little plates essentially. Yeah, like paper plates. Yeah. And so if, if water is percolating through or water is not percolating through or if water, <clears throat> if they get wet and then they get dry, the plates orient themselves dependent on that. And you can see that under uh, under microscopic view. Yeah, it's pre actually pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, Latticecepic, skelicepic. Uh, what are some other ones? Uh you get birefringence. So like as you turn the stage of the microscope. Oh, yeah. Really pretty. They, yeah, they either light up or don't light up. Uh, they could be moskepic or skeletic. So like they could be random or not random. In those, those uh, latticepic and then skeletic where they're, where they're kind of coating around other mineral grains, you see those in that sort of 2 million year period in the lead up to the EOT. And so those are the two fabrics that indicate more wetting and drying. And, and that was paired with clays that sort of indicate seasonality too. So again, almost like the Oreodon, you have these, these things that are like visual and macroscopic and they're not yeah. plots and graphs. They're just actual tangible evidence, which is really cool. And so I mean, even during dry periods, <clears throat> you get less clay because clay, yeah. is, it's, it forms through hydrolysis. So you need water as to drive it. Soil, soil forms slower, but it's still forming if it's dry, but just really slow. Yeah, that's why it's hard. It's really hard to put a time stamp on a soil. Like how old is the soil? Well, yeah, I remember like a bunch I, of other factors. When I was, you know, when I was doing my dissertation and I, I worked with people who didn't do soils and they're like, all right, what's the time? What's the timing on this soil? And it was just a random like alpha soil. And it was like, well, anywhere from 50 to 500,000 years. And like, <laughs> well, it's a pretty big range. I was like, well, yeah, that's, that's, that's the soil game for you. Yep. Yeah. You're un unpacking that cumulative history of climate as a, as opposed to a linear time series. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, if you can pin a bunch of those other soil forming uh, criteria down, like, yes, the parent material hasn't changed. Yes. The relief hasn't changed. Yes. The, yeah. the, the, where you are on the planet hasn't really changed. Then you can try to start playing with those other variables to try to narrow them down. But it's, you know, it's it's a it's a big dance, you know. It, there, yeah. I mean, 
<clears throat> like any good science, there's a lot of arm waving involved. Yeah. Yeah. You go. The more arm waving, the better. Usually, is yeah. how I look at it. Yeah. You know? It's it's uh, like it's like watching the movie you know, of the documentary Planet Earth, where like the bird dances around. Oh, better yeah. bird of paradise. Yeah, like you know, you got to make your bird, you got to make your dance. Yep. You know, enticing. You got to show it off. Yeah. Yeah. As long as you can sort of. Yeah. As long as, as as long as your dance is better than the next guys, that's all that matters. <laughs> We're not we're not talking about data anymore. There's got to be a little data. In there. <laughs> well, you da- data data is Look the background you. of your dance. So <laughs> it's the stage. That's just it's the stage. That's just noise. That's noise in the background. <laughs> All right. So, so what's what's next for Ted? What's next? Well, I'm I'm two months into my first year at Brown for this PhD uh, where. I'll probably be able to spend all five years on this lake core that came from uh, Emmerich Lake in Alaska, which is a really cool area because it's pretty adjacent to the Beringian Land Bridge. And uh, during the last glacial maximum, it actually avoided being covered by ice. Oh, Um, wow. So you have this really long record. So this core goes back like 200,000 years, which is really long for an Arctic lake core. And you have this sort of undisturbed climate record. Um, and one of the cool things is, is along with all the climate proxies that exist, um, and those are important too, because if you're up there at those high latitudes, you can, you can look at how climate changed up there and try to ass- assess the role of uh, Arctic amplification and sort of correlate climate change up at those high latitudes with places at lower latitudes and seeing how, you know, coincident climate changes are and seeing what, what the, what the degree of changes between those two locations. So the climate stuff's really cool, but you can also look for human biomarkers in the younger sediments and try to look for evidence of the human migration over the Beringian land bridge. So what makes cool. a human biomarker? What's it? What, what makes a human biomarker? Like what so there's it? one more direct and then there's one kind of indirect. The most direct is fecal sterile markers. I was thinking, I was thinking, yeah. poop. I was thinking yeah, it's poop. poop. It's poop. Always. It's always poop. What's the, um, indirect, what's the indirect? Uh, PAHs. Tinkle. So you, oh, making fire. Yeah. From fires. I was going <laughs> to yeah. say that. Yeah. We, uh, we have uh, a I was going number that. one. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I have, I have a question. So you have these higher latitudes in Alaska. Uh, you know, I'm no glaciologist, but, you know, we had glaciers way down into Pennsylvania. How, how did this lake not get covered over? Well, I, I mentioned it's it's two months into year one, right? <laughs> no, no, that's fine. But, I'm just, I'm but no, just I curious. Think, um, I do think it has to do maybe with like, uh, you know, atmospheric circulation. Okay. And just different regional climate variations where this area just kind of stayed warm enough or at least just evaded ice growth. Yeah, kind of like out London shouldn't be as warm as it is now. Yeah. Like you look at London and it's like directly across mm. from like, you know, central Canada. That's, that's, a great, yeah. that's a great analogy. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Very cool. Man, I can't wait to hear about this uh, poop and PAHs. 
Um, I'm excited about it too. I'm also excited about uh, the fact that even though I just started at Brown, I'm going to take some time off almost immediately because I think next week I'm having a kid. What? So that's also in my future. Nice. Congratulations. Congratulations. Yeah. Man. I didn't realize it was next week. It, it might be. It might be. We have big plans for next week. So wait, when, so wait, wait. When's the literally, what? Wait, sorry, Steve. When I was texting you today saying, are we good for today? And you're like, well... I didn't really prepare as much as I wanted to. Can we put it off for a week? Like, so we have your wife would have killed. No, no, no. We're, we're planners, Jesse. And we have a whole, we have a whole induction plan. And I, that would have buffered me by two days before the delivery. (laughs) I I appreciate your optimism going into having kid one. All these plans. I really, Oh man. Really feel like you were yeah yeah good uh first time parents god love you <laughs> yeah. uh, my my wife's due date uh was like july 1st and on july 2nd she was ready to murder me this <laughs> these doctors said i don't like oh man yeah, we well i mean Kid number one was a week late, and kid number two, because the C-section was scheduled, and so we had a date. So we went in, you know, July 29th, <clears throat> and they're like, "All right, it's going to happen at you know 7 a.m. So you got to get in at five. So we went in at 5 a.m. Went into pre-op or whatever. Sorry, this is outside outside the scope of the <laughs> the podcast here, but we were there for 15 hours before we got in. Man. Oh, uh, anyway, I can't what's believe, 15 I can't humans have been here for 200,000 years. <laughs> you're going to put this off for a week, two days beforehand. No, yeah. like I said, like you're I said, it's, it's, it's a scheduled induction and we might, it's, it's elective. So they might kick us out. We might not even be able to do it. It's, it's, we're optimistically going to have this kid next week. Attaboy. Awesome. <laughs> I'm That's really great. excited yeah. for you. Yeah. Yeah. This is a Boy. surreal moment. <laughs> uh, let me, if you ever need some some tips on doing a PhD while you have a kid, we, we yeah. should talk. I could use I can use the tips on doing a PhD without having a kid. So yeah, whatever yeah, you no, got for me. I mean, yeah, it's awful either way. By the time I, by the time I finished my master's, my third was on its way. So, <laughs> how do you feel, Chris, about doing it? Uh, I think uh, if you're just you, you, you're going to learn how to suffer a lot and you'll just, yeah. the, the suffering's comforting and you'll just learn to, it is. yeah. Just, yeah. yeah you, I, which sounds like parenthood. This, this too shall pass. <laughs> so all you got to keep on saying. <laughs> yeah. No, no, that's it's a great. means to an end. Stop. Congratulations. This is exciting, exciting, exciting stuff. Yeah. So. No, it, is great. It, it, it is. It is fun. Yeah. So. You're, you're in a wonderful place. You're, you're going to have a kid. You're doing your PhD. It's great. Yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying it. I, I yeah. you know, for, I enjoyed doing my master's. I loved being at Temple. I thought that the whole that whole process was great, and I'm excited about what I'm doing at Brown. So, whoever's listening out there, don't let them scare you off. No, 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 no. And I don't, <laughs> I don't mean to. I do, I do think one one doing grad school is awesome because like you're getting paid to sort of think and, and, and put together these, you're solving puzzles and whatnot. Uh, yeah. We as should, lo- as long as you're in the sciences. Yeah. Most people pay for their masters or yeah. pay for their. PhD. Yeah. 
Yeah, we're lucky. But we should maybe we should we should do a PSA or an episode on on the mental health of of grad students and how we do a poor job at handling it. Yes, and and I can come back for that one because uh, imposter syndrome <laughs> imposter syndrome is real. Nice. And that yeah. can that can hit day one. <laughs> yeah. So, my, real quick, with my first kid, uh, I had an internship at the USGS. I was oh my in, God, I forgot about I forgot about. I was in Reston, Virginia, uh, and you know my wife's living in the Philadelphia area, and I had uh, five days off to have a kid during my internship. So I, I come home on the first because she's supposed to have it on the second. She doesn't have it on the second. And this is the conversation we had about her freaking out. And so, but she did have it on the third. And then, you know, I went back to my internship on like the seventh. <laughs> so, Oof. all right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Full uh, circle. Yeah. It was, Were you drilling to Chesapeake Bay impact? No, it was. Uh, uh, Cambridge Dorchester Airport core number two. Mm. Ah, that good yes. old core number two. Classic. Everyone knows. Classic. Yeah. Yeah. Who doesn't know the Cambridge Dorchester core number two? Hey, airport. Listen. You're not yeah. living. Airport. Airport. You're not living if you don't it, know that. It was. Core, it was. Uh, it was exciting. Like we drilled. You know, well over a thousand feet. It was. It was I mean, cool. that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, cor- I feel cored like, over a thousand feet. I mean, yeah. any drill project is pretty it's a neat thing to be a part of yeah but i I remember megan came down to visit me uh and my direct supervisor who was awesome but she didn't have kids and a bunch of the other guys on the project did have kids and uh she was like well you know he can he can go see his wife after we're done drilling for the day and they're like no this is her brand new baby. You're going to give him the day off. <laughs> and I remember being like, Oh my God, they're going to give me the day off. And meanwhile, this is an internship. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but it was, it was, yeah, it was, it was fun. It was cool. Uh, it is, it, it's a chance to see how the science is like done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, like you're, you're pulling see how the, the sausage is made. Yeah. You're pulling the rock out of the earth. Yep. And and you're looking at it like live, and, and just the the fact that your eyes are the first eyes to be on this this slice of rock in in you know X amount of hundreds, thousands, millions of years is is just really cool. Yeah, when you're when you're doing the dis- description of it too, you're like they pass the core down, and you're like, well, I'm the one in charge of describing this. Yes. <laughs> For all other scientists to see, (laughs) I guess it looks sandy, (laughs) layery. I've gone through so many core reports, and I'm like, what, what, like, because oftentimes core reports, just for for folks out there, like when when they drill core and they pull it up, they're same as above. Yeah, it's sort of a standardized sheet. And it like there, there's a column where you where you sketch in the lithology and any features you see, and then you write descriptions and some yeah. Sometimes you read them, and so you can see it's just scanned in, so you see everyone's handwriting, and then you initial it and you date it and whatnot, and you're like, what? 
what do you mean same as above? Like you, you actually sketched in a different feature here. Like <laughs> I need more information. I don't want to go to a warehouse and dig this core out. Yep. Please. Good times. Tell, tell me, tell me more. Tell me all of things. Yep. So Ted, <clears throat> that's awesome. Good luck. Yeah, man. man. Good luck at Brown. Good luck with kids or oh, kids. Yeah, thank you. Uh, is it, is it one or is it two or three, three. or four? The kids? Yeah. I think it's one. I think it's the first one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm pretty sure in this day and age, they could tell if it's more than yeah. one. Yeah. It yeah. seems. Yeah. All signs point to one. Nice. Oh, Attaboy. man. That's awesome. Yeah. Congratulations. Wait, uh, I can. Uh, I'll, I'll just say her name just for she's out recorded in the podcast world. Oh, my gosh. Yes. We're, we're expecting Shari Ruth Bobbick. Shari. Shari. All right. Nice. Uh, my yeah. daughter's middle name is Ruth. Oh, awesome. Nice. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, it's a family name on, on my wife's side. So very cool. Cool. Yeah. Yep. Same. Same as he's here. Great. Great. Yeah. Shari. That's awesome. <laughs> I hope she gets to listen to this and, uh, you know, yeah. I'll, I'll listen to it first and see, and see how I did. <laughs> uh, don't, don't do that. Don't torture yourself. <laughs> yeah. Don't. Uh, here's a tip. Don't ever listen to the. <laughs> <laughs> Pro tip. Wait, wait a second. <laughs> On that note, hey, yeah. Ted, thanks, thanks so much for uh, yeah. uh, this week. We really appreciate you having on the podcast. Uh, and yeah, man, thanks. We'd love to have you back on again. We'll have to check in with you in the near future. See how you're doing. See, uh, you know, how your project's been progressing, and come back on and give us a progress report. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this new project sounds different from what you've done and sounds pretty uh, the, sweet the one he's having a baby or no, no the kids are all the same i want to know how this alaskan lake is <laughs> no i, I want to hear about this too yeah, um, no, I'll, I'll come back and i'll report on both i really appreciate that yeah i'll, I'll yeah. take you up on the invite <laughs> and you'll, you'll have to keep us updated on your daughter and we will uh because i know all our rabid podcast fans are going to want to know so yeah, I'll, i'm happy to do it <laughs> Awesome, man. Well, thank you. And uh, thank you to all of uh, all the listeners out there. Thank you, guys. We love you so much. Uh, thanks to all of our Patreon sponsors out there. If you'd like to sponsor the podcast, you go to patreon.com slash geology flannel cast. Check out all the different tiers of sponsorship. Uh, you can, uh, you know, we have sponsorship tiers. You can come on, hang out with us during the podcast. Uh we have a little uh, hangout session before the podcast and all this fun stuff. Um, so, yeah, anyways, you can check that out on geologyflannelcast.com. Or, jeez, uh, patreon.com slash geologyflannelcast. We have geologyflannelcast.com. We got some uh, all the podcast episodes on there, show notes and websites and stuff like that that we would link to the uh, to the episodes. Uh, we got some merch on there. You can go check out the Geology Flannel Cast coffee mugs. It will make your coffee taste at least 20% greater, no more than 30% greater though, <laughs> or better, I should say. And uh, some t-shirts on there, stickers and all that fun stuff. If you like to support the flannel cast that way. And that's it. You got all the, all the social media stuff, the Facebook, the Instagram, we're out there. So go check it out. All right, everyone. That's a wrap. Thank you so much for, uh, for hanging out this week. Jesse, what song you got to, uh, to play us out to? Oh boy. Caught oh. me off guard. Caught me off guard. Oh, oh man. Oh. Well, no, I'll go with and this let this be an enticement 
maybe sign up for Patreon. Uh, let's go with Bon Jovi, Slippery When Wet. Oh, <laughs> yeah. uh, we had a wonderful discussion. About Only this. makes sense in the context of the pre. Yeah, yeah you were a Patreon sponsor uh, and you're hanging out with us before the show started. That would make sense right now. Yeah. So uh, nice. I like go. it. Good plug. <laughs> they pulled that one out of, you know, yeah. anyway. All right. everyone. <laughs> Thanks so much. And we'll catch you guys next week for another fun, exciting episode of the geology flannel cast. See ya. Bye. Bye. Thanks for stopping by. <laughs>